0: Today's reading is from Malachi 2:10 through 16. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he, has, he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. "'though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. "'Did he not make them one "'with a portion of the Spirit in their union? "'And what was the one God seeking? "'Godly offspring. "'So guard yourselves in your spirit "'and let none of you be faithless "'to the wife of your youth. "'For the man who does not love his wife "'but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, "'covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. "'So guard yourselves in your spirit "'and do not be faithless.'" This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: All right, thank you, Sherry. Morning, Redemption. Good to see you all. If you're new here, my name is Frank, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Arcadia. Uh, glad to be with you this morning. We're in the midst of a six-week series in Malachi, which I'll talk a little bit more about in just a minute. Um, We do have two brand new pastors on our staff here. We're blessed and excited to have that. And I wanted to... uh, Thursday night is really important. We'd love for you all to come then. Uh, You'll get to know them a little bit better. But I wanted to formally, finally, formally introduce you to both of them uh, today. And so if Tyler and his wife Liz would come up, and James and his wife Liz would also come up. So... Great to see you all. So this is Tyler Thompson and his wife Liz, and that is Dallas. Um, and Tyler is our pastor of church formation and worship. You already saw him leading uh, today. And if you were here last week, you saw him leading from uh, the keyboard. And uh, they, uh, Tyler actually spent a lot of his youth in, in uh, Phoenix, kind of grew up around here. But they spent uh, most of their recent years in California. Uh, he's a graduate of Biola, which is okay, and um, and some other stuff as well. And then this is James Delarado and his wife Liz, and uh, James is a little bit more from Phoenix, and in fact, James has a history with Praxis Church and uh, early redemption, so uh, kind of coming back home after lots of prodigal days, I guess, yeah, sort of like that, and uh, his wife Liz and um, took me about a week to memorize their wives' names. That was really hard. Um, anyway, we are glad that you are here. Uh, James started with us in December, and Tyler, you started with us essentially January 13th, and we just want to be able to welcome them today, and we're also going to pray for them uh, as well. So if there are any staff members, any deacons or um, elders that are here, if you would please come forward right now. I see you over there, Melissa. You're, you're a deacon. <laughs> Come on up. Let's lay hands on them. Oh, good. Here comes
0: Mark and Caleb.
1: Would you pray with me? Gracious and holy Father, we are so blessed. We thank you for bringing these families to us. We thank you for the way you've worked in the midst of this. Uh, we thank you for the way you've gifted both James and Tyler and their wives, and you've made us a part of this, made them a part of this community now. Uh, we've been blessed by that. We also thank you for our interim time. Uh, we were blessed by the leadership of, of so many others, and uh, we're thankful for that as well. Um, this last. Uh, Six months has been really a testament to what we say all the time about you, and we're going to say it again in the service today, uh, that you are the great provider and you're the great protector. So we thank you for that. Uh, God, we ask that you would uh, consecrate them to your service at Redemption Arcadia and that you would bless them and equip them for that, and God, that you would be given all the glory. And God, I just ask that as a faith community, you would help lead us in how we can support them and help them and encourage them. God, we thank you for your wisdom and your hope. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Welcome, guys. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Malachi chapter 2. Uh, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Um, it's interesting, I, I was just hit with the heaviness of this series this last week, and, and, and it took a while for it to really hit me, and I think the reason is because uh, for so many years I've studied Malachi, and I've taught Malachi several times, and I appreciate what Malachi has to say almost to the extent that I've been desensitized to it. And then this week, um, just reflecting on Tyler's excellent sermon last week and also how we opened the series the week before, and with this sermon coming up today, I realized this is a tough series. This is hard stuff. Uh, We talked about in the first week that, that Malachi is really a book of heart surgery on his people, and it's true. There's nothing superfluous about what's going on. In this book it's all going very very deep and so there's going to be some uh, some pain Uh, but just like when you when you need to set a bone after it's been broken and there's some pain there in order for it to heal um, that's one of the things that Malachi is bringing in his message to his people Uh, the other thing we need to remember and and understand is that uh, God is silent For 400 years after malachi until jesus comes again so we need to remember that this is god's last word to his people before jesus comes and it's and it it, the way i say it is there's not a lot of cupcakes and muffins in malachi Uh, that's my way of saying there's not a lot of fluffy talk here Uh, he goes right at it and he doesn't waste any time and these are very difficult and challenging topics that we're looking at. And today is no different. I've, I've already had a couple of people come up and say, oh my goodness, that was really heavy. That's such a sensitive topic and, and you didn't mince any words, blah, blah, blah. You need to be prepared. This is hard stuff. This is hard stuff. We also need to remember that God's redemption is not outside of anything that we're talking about here as well. So we need to remember that as well. But it is hard stuff, and we're going to go right at the hearts of people in the midst of not just their relationship with God, but in the midst of their relationship in marriage as well. And so if you heard what Sherry read, you understand um, that it's going to be challenging. Um, The way Malachi writes this short little book, I think, is rhetorical genius. He sets it up as six different disputations between God and his people, where God says, here's my charge against you. Uh, God's people said, say, how, why, no, it's not true. And then God says, all right, but here's why it is true and, and lays out uh, his case. And these disputes have been about and will be about things like faithlessness. That's what today is about. Uh, love and, and the unconditional Part of God's love and how that's manifest, and how weird it is that He talks about His election um, of the the Jews and His denial of the Edomites as proof of His um, undying love. We're going to talk about stewardship. All of you should mark your calendars for that because I know you love that topic. We're going to talk about justice and judgment. We're going to talk about fearing God in the midst of this and and these disputes. You hear those disputes, you understand these disputes with God are not uncommon. They're the same things that we deal with God uh, today, all the same things. And it just reminds me again of, of something that I, for years as a Christian I've heard and I've read about. We need to remember that God is eternal. God is timeless. If he's not eternal, if he's not timeless, he can't be God. You can't be sovereign and have a starting point. And an ending point. So God is timeless and eternal. And therefore a timeless and eternal God would not ever and cannot ever produce dated material. So you can read Malachi. And it's helpful to understand the context that Malachi writes into. But you can read Malachi from 2,500 years ago and there's stuff for us. You can read the book of Daniel from 2,700 years ago, and there's stuff for us. You can read the Exodus from uh, 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, whenever it was, and, and there's stuff uh, for us. As, I'm sorry, 3,500 years ago, and there's uh, stuff for us. So it is a tough series. Um, we need to remember, though, that God is timeless, and he's speaking to us today as well. And like I said, today's dispute, which is the third one, is about faith or actually, more accurately, it's about faithlessness. Again, if you were listening as um, Sherry read the scripture, in these seven verses, the Hebrew word translated faithless occurs five times. Faithless five times. And so that's uh, a big issue in today's passage. Another thing about today's passage, these seven verses, is they ha- this passage has to be seen on two levels. This, this passage sounds like it's about marriage, human marriage, and it is, but, it, but it's more than that. It's also about idolatry and it's about the covenant oneness of God and his people and how his people have been breaking that. In other words, the divorce that Malachi talks about here is not just the divorce of, of a husband and wife, but it's also about divorcing ourselves from the Lord. It's about violating our covenant oneness with the Lord. Anytime God's people uh, break covenant with God. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read through pretty slowly all six, seven of these verses and pick them apart. And we're going to spend most of our time on the last verse, which is where the meat and the culmination is of everything, but we're going to go through all of it. So here's the first three verses and we'll look at that. Malachi writes, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? We're created in His image is what he's saying. It's a reference to Genesis. Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. Israel, God's people, the Jews. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which He loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So verse 10, Malachi introduces this third dispute with a description of God's people's infidelity against one another. And this infidelity profanes their covenant with God who is creator and father and this infidelity is rooted in and is a direct result of their faithlessness toward God. Now, parents, if if you are a parent, I think you get this. When your kids fight with one another, yes, I get it. It's annoying. I've got that one figured out. But on a deeper level, It also hurts when your kids fight with one another because it's fragmenting the covenant oneness that you should have in your family. You feel fragmented and disjointed and troubled. And there's this sort of a cloud that's hanging over. Even the little kids, it still brings that cloud. And And their squabbling is, at least in one sense, a sign that they've broken fidelity with you because you're always telling them, you need to figure out how to work out your relationship with your siblings. And when they can't, it's like breaking covenant with you. So that's why it hurts. It's more than just annoying. It hurts on that level as well. And God feels this as well. God hates that his people are faithless to one another because he's creator. And he has created us in his image. Now think about that. In his image. It's very clear that God is one God manifest in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us create. Humankind in our image and after our likeness. Us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We need to understand that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in perfect communion, perfect harmony, perfect community, perfect relationship with one another. In fact, it's so perfect that um, uh, it's been described as how each member of the Holy uh, Trinity is yielded towards one another. John Ortberg says they're shy towards one another. Whenever you see... Uh, God the Father speaking about Jesus the Son or the Holy Spirit, you see God the Father pushing them forward saying they are important. Whenever you hear Jesus talking about the Father or the Holy Spirit, you hear Jesus saying, I do what my Father tells me to do. My Father is in charge. When he talks about the Holy Spirit, he says, I'm going to the cross, but it's going to be better for you because the Holy Spirit is coming. He's pushing them forward. Whenever you hear the Holy Spirit speak of the other two, it's it's the Holy Spirit pointing people to the Father and to the Son. They're shy towards one another. Is that the way all of our relationships are? Of course not. Because they're broken. We want people to be looking at us. We want people to be serving us. We want people to be yielded to us. And and, and so that's a problem. When we we behave the way we do, it breaks our imago Dei, our image image of Godness. Verse 10 calls us away from the very real problem that often occurs in faith community where it should not happen. It calls us away from gossip and faction making and grumbling and backbiting. We are God's people, and as such, we're called to be much better. Uh, James also writes about this in the New Testament. James writes in chapter 3, No human being can tame their tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With our tongue, the way we speak, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in His image and likeness. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. You see that? And then verse 11, I'm just going to keep rereading this so we know where we are. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. What is this abomination that God is speaking of here? Some Bible translations take that word abomination and they call it detestable. So abomination, detestable, whatever it is, it's not good. What is this detestable thing that God is talking about? It's idolatry. It's the worship of false gods. Whatever those false gods might be, it can be a little votive statue or it can be your career. It it doesn't matter. Whatever you're placing in importance in front of God, it's idolatry. And when we worship false gods, we are adulterating our relationship with God. We are committing adultery against God when we do that. Now, literally and historically, what often happened, and this is what Malachi is referencing here, what often happened was that a Jewish man would marry young and he would marry a young Jewish woman. So they would keep this covenant intact. But then later on, uh, for terrible reasons, for terrible, terrible reasons, read through Scripture and you'd, you'd find some of those. Like she burnt the toast, okay? But, but sometimes it was simply for the purpose of improving their economic prospects. These Jewish men later on would divorce their Jewish wives of their youth. We'll see that little phrase in a minute. Their wives of their youth, and they would go off and marry foreign wives who also happened to worship false gods. And part of the deal of the new marriage, of course, was that the Jewish men had to commit to serving and worshiping the gods of their new foreign wives. So they're committing adultery against God. They've divorced God. They're breaking covenant with the one true God. They're breaking covenant with the God of their fathers, the God who rescued them through the exodus and out of the exile. For their own personal preferences and conveniences. That's it. God calls this adultery. They're committing adultery, not just with their new wives, but they've also divorced God and committed adultery against Him. You see, marriage is, throughout Scripture, a picture of God and His people, the covenant oneness, Christ and His church. So this adultery is about marriage, and we're going to get there. But on another level, it's also about faithlessness to God. And then verse 12, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of a man who does this and brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. This verse describes the hypocrisy of religion without relationship. The hypocrisy of religion for the sake and the purpose of appearances only. Religion that isn't really in your heart. In other words, they're bringing an offering to God while they're committing adultery and idolatry and their true worship and allegiance is elsewhere. It's the person who brings an offering to God, but really that they're living a second life that is worshiping all the wrong things. But you bring the offering for the sake of appearances and to appear pious in front of other people. And then it just flows, verse 12 flows right into verse 13. I'm going to read 13 and 14, but notice the narrative and argumentative construction from 12 to 13. 13 becomes a consequence of 12. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because God no longer regards the offering that you bring or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So you see that narrative flow. Verse 13 is the consequential result of verse 12. God is not going to accept an offering from somebody who's living this double life, uh, which, which then the fake worshiper begins to whine about. They go to the altar and God doesn't accept the offering, and so they cover the altar with tears. Why won't you accept it? And God says, here's why you bring me these offerings and you make a big production out of it, but I have witnessed your true worship through your marriages, the treatment of your wives, and through your divorces. And that's unfortunate for you because that shows your true heart, not these offerings. These offerings have nothing to do with your true heart. And then verse 14, you see that phrase, the wife of your youth. And again, that has two different meanings, two different levels here. It is the young Jewish wives that we just talked about, But it's also a double entendre reference to the early youthful history of the Jews, Abraham and Jacob, Egypt and the the Exodus, and God's marital covenant with his people, the wife of your youth. When I first came to you and made this covenant with Abraham, but the people have breached this covenant as well. And then we get to 15 and 16, the meat of this, sort of the culmination of everything, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? In other other words, when you get married, God gives you his Holy Spirit in order to help you in that marriage, to sustain you and guide you and give you wisdom. And And what was the one God seeking for this? Godly offspring. He wants the fruit of the Holy Spirit in one sense. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So you look at verse 15, you go, how, how? How can you, God's people, how can you commit adultery against the one God who made you, who chose you, who saved you, who restored you, who, re- who redeems you, and and not only that, he gives you his spirit in the midst of your marriage. How can you possibly commit adultery against him? And what does God seek for all that he's done for you? What does he seek? He's seeking a faithful relationship. That's what he wants. He wants us to be faithful and that relationship will then help to produce godly offspring again two levels of the spirit being involved in 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 our lives and in our relationships produces that fruit of the holy spirit offspring is like fruit you know love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control but also but also uh, practically it'll produce children of faith Because of the unrelenting faith of the parents and the family that those children are a part of. Idolatry and divorce are fertile grounds for ungodly offspring. And this formula is certainly not perfect, but it is clear that children always have a better chance in a family of faith. And this much is sure. Divorce is not a useful mechanism for creating in your children a reverence for the Lord. And then let me just reread verse 16. Here's where we're going to camp. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So this, again, is true on both levels, as Malachi speaks on both levels. So we cannot get away from the fact that this passage today is about our constant broken tendency to dissipate our faith and for and trust in God. And that is why... His, God's, unfailing faithfulness and unconditional love for us is so important and must be seen as a beautiful gift and a source of joy. Although God is being firm and direct with His people here, as He is with us and as He has every right to be, it is because of His great love and faithfulness for us that He's firm and direct. And daily we need to be reminded not to worship And place faith in things of this world, but to serve and love Him. And in doing so, we're going to serve and love others as well. I recall what Isaiah writes a couple hundred years earlier in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 2, which was then repeated by Paul the Apostle in his letter to the Romans in chapter 9. Here's what Isaiah writes. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people, a faithless people, He's chosen these people. He's provided for these people. He's protected these people. He's living in covenant with these people. His arms are always out for these people. And all they do is walk away. They're obstinate. They're faithless. They're sure they have a better way. And he's standing there holding out his hands. Isaiah continues. Who walk in ways that are not good. And then he writes this. I love this phrase here. A people who insist on pursuing their own imagination." We just have this way. Those of you who say, I'm not very creative. Yes, you are. Because because you can create all kinds of ways in your imagination to walk away from God and think it's the right thing to do. I'm the same way. I am the same way. I'm not a creative person. But when it comes to sin, man, just watch my creative juices flow, my brothers and sisters. That's just true. They're pursuing their own imaginations. But... But verse 16 also has a message that clearly speaks against marital divorce, especially the type of divorce that he's talking about in these verses. God does hate divorce. That is true, mostly because divorce is an indication and reminder of how sin has broken his perfect creation. But in this verse, what we also learn is how much God detests the ease and flippantness with which we tend to approach divorce, not only in our day, but back in Malachi's day as well. God reminds us, marriage is not a contract that can be broken, but a covenant to be honored. It's a covenant to be honored. And the covenant is not just a two-way covenant between the wife and the husband. The covenant is a three-way covenant between the wife, the husband, and God. You see in verse 15, God gives us His Holy Spirit in the marriage. Paul talks about that too in the New Testament. The Spirit indwells our marriages. And that clause you see in there, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, it's an ancient Hebrew way of saying this, for the man who divorces his wife simply because he finds her no longer suitable. This husband covers himself in violence. And, and read through the, the, the Old Testament, especially the Bible, and you'll see that there were some strange reasons that, that husbands would feel justified in, in uh, divorcing their, their wives. In, in one of the um, ancient commentaries on, on the law, it was okay to divorce your wife if she, quote, burnt the toast, for crying out loud. And so they were divorcing their wives for these, these crazy reasons. No longer suitable. You're no longer... This is an image bearer of God. You're no longer suitable. In other words, easy, no-fault divorce is an abomination in God's eyes. He says it's detestable. And yes, yes, there are biblical reasons for divorce, and divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Those biblical reasons, adultery and abandonment, and certain forms and levels of abuse can certainly constitute abandonment. The problem, though, is that the vast majority of divorces today and in Malachi's day can be boiled down to this simple fact. Marriage is hard, and people don't trust God. Marriage is hard, and people don't trust God. That's the problem. Consequently, in our marriages, we just don't have enough grace, forgiveness, and steadfastness. That's the challenge. And listen, listen, listen. When you take two sinners and you put them together in close marriage quarters, you are deluded if you think that there won't be challenges and that the two people won't become fatigued by each other. That's just what it is. Now, I know that sounds like there's no hope. There is hope, but you need to understand it's going to be challenging, okay? Some of you single people right now are going, man, I am so glad I'm single, (laughs) you know, The answer to this fatigue, the answer to the challenges, though, it's not disillusion. It's the gospel. The answer is not Myers-Briggs, but the Holy Spirit. And by the way, I love Myers-Briggs. I think it's a helpful tool, but Myers-Briggs can't fix your marriage. And it's not going to predict that you're going to have a good marriage. The Holy Spirit is much stronger and more powerful than Myers-Briggs, in case you were wondering. A couple of people walked up to me after the first service this morning and said, "You're so dated. Why did you say Myers-Briggs? Why didn't you say Enneagram?" And I said, "I can't I can't pronounce the Enneagram. So I can't I don't even know how to say it right. So I think I'm a 2. I don't know. I don't care, okay? The answer is not to move on to the next best thing, which by the way always eventually proves to be just as challenging as the last old thing but to remember that you already have the next best thing and you should treat her or him as such. The answer is not withdrawal, but repentance and forgiveness. C.S. Lewis wrote this, Falling in love is something that happens to us. Staying in love is something that requires work. And, and, And frankly, if you and I understood how much God loves marriage, then we would have a better understanding of why God hates divorce. I just hear this all the time, you know, God hates divorce, and then somebody drops an imaginary mic and walks off as if that's the end of the conversation. That's true, but it's so incomplete. God has a view of marriage that is symbolic of his covenant relationship with us, and so here you go, to divorce for reasons such as mutual disenchantment, or I got tired of her or him, or there's something better out there, I'm sure. Or she just doesn't do it for me anymore. Or we used to have so much fun together. Or he's not making the money that I thought he would. Or she talks too much, shops too much, watches too much reality TV. And she really just needs to serve my needs better. Or whatever, whatever it is, that breaks God's heart. His heart is broken. God sees all of that as, I don't trust God and his covenant with me is of little importance. And because I find these flaws in my marriage, by implication, I'm also finding flaws with God. That's the challenging truth of what this passage is about. God says that this kind of divorce, this type of disillusion, is a type of violence against image bearers of God. This is really serious, y'all. And the text of this verse clearly tells us that the violence is occurring not just against the one who is being divorced, but the violence actually returns against the one doing the divorcing. The divorcer is also violating his or her own imago Dei. Spousal fidelity is inextricably linked to our spiritual well-being. That's why Malachi 2.16 is so serious. This verse is an all-encompassing verse about covenant, Faith, forgiveness, and genuine love. The idea, God hates divorce, is true, but it's incomplete. And and, and here you go. Focus on me here. I want you to see this. God hates divorce. That's the action. And he hates it. And that's a text. God hates divorce. But what he also hates is the text behind the text. He hates the faithlessness and the self-centeredness. And the shallowness that's motivating the action of divorce. He hates that too. And then he also hates, over here, the text in front of the text. He hates what it does to the people who are getting the divorce. How it hurts and damages at some level. And again, there are legitimate divorces. We get all of that. But most of them really aren't. It's just a matter of convenience and preference. And so God hates it when one human defiles, harms, or dismisses another based essentially on preference, convenience, challenge, or compatibility. God hates divorce because of the faithlessness that's motivating the divorce. This is way deeper, way deeper than that simple, overused, cliched line, God hates divorce. In fact, at Redemption Church, we talked about this at the Preaching Collective. We, We see it this way. To just say that God hates divorce is to oversimplify this passage. Rather, God is for marriage, and he is against shallowness, treachery, oppression, abuse, lust, petulance, triteness, and faithlessness. And that whole garment thing, the covering his garment with violence. There was an ancient tradition of the husband at the wedding taking a cloak and covering his wife with the cloak as a symbol of his covenant covenant his promise that he's going to protect and provide for his wife and and be over his wife in a protective and providing way. And when he violates the marriage covenant, God says he symbolically turned that cloak of of, um, provision and protection into a cloak of violence. Uh, Furthermore, let's hit on this. I'm going to go here. because it bothers me. It may not bother you, but it really bothers me at a cellular level, and I have the mic, so I'm going to go here, okay? This whole culture of soulmates. I'm going to find my soulmate. Oh, he's my soulmate. She's my soulmate. Now, be honest. That usually lasts, what, a week? Ten days, if it's really cool, okay? Right? Pretty soon you find out your soulmate's got some sin and some problems, right? So this, I, this whole culture of soulmate that we've bought into, okay? Listen very carefully. Your spouse is not your soulmate. Jesus is your soulmate. If you place on your spouse, your husband and your, or your wife... This expectation that they're going to fulfill every deep need your soul has, you have set yourself up for failure, you've set your spouse up for failure, there's no way they can meet that that level of competency, and you need to understand that it's as much your fault as it is their fault. Jesus is our soulmate. Your husband, your wife, your spouse, that's who God has given you in marriage here, um, it is so silly, I'll go even deeper, how Christian Mingle, for instance, has bought into this utopian idea of they're going to find your soulmate. What about the Holy Spirit, Christian Mingle? Isn't that important? Right here, God gives us the Spirit to empower our marriages and relationships. And by the way, Let me say this too, if you're here and you're single, and maybe what you're hearing, and I understand why, is you're hearing, well, marriage is the only way to live as a Christian then, apparently. I mean, God really loves marriage, and this marriage thing is really important. Here you go. Who's your soulmate? Jesus. Jesus. Marriage is not the privileged Christian way of living. In fact, if you read Paul in the New Testament, you would find out that Paul says it's actually better for the the faith community if you remain single But because we burn with passion, you should marry. But it's actually better if you remain single. Your soulmate is Jesus. What Paul is saying is that there is a a significant, important, I would even say, in some respects, elevated place in the church for single people. I know, I know that your heart may want to be married. I understand that. And maybe not after this sermon today. But at any rate, I know, I know that. But you need to understand that there isn't any privileged status for being married. Marriage is a picture of this covenant oneness, but so is the picture of of races and ethnicities reconciling. That is too. The covenant oneness of Christ and his bride, the church of you and Jesus. Jesus is our soulmate. Now listen, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, the famous marriage passage, Paul writes this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I don't hear any of that fluffy soulmate language in Paul's command to the husbands. I just don't. What I do hear is that the Holy Spirit has a lot of work to do and we need to rely on the Holy Spirit. By the way, sounds like this has been really heavy on the husbands this morning, right? The passage is heavy on the husbands. I've been heavy on the husbands. Can I get an amen? Deep-throated amen? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Okay, so, wives, your turn. Look up here, my sisters in Christ. Look up here, wives. Like the church whom Christ loves not because of her virtue, but in spite of her sin, you need to remember that you're no day at the beach either. <laughs> you're not off the hook on this either. And the minute you start saying, and I hear this all the time, the minute you start saying, yeah, but he just didn't turn out to be all that great. You really should recall the words of that great time-honored marriage counselor, Tom Schrader, when he says, there were three billion fish in the sea and he's the flounder you picked. (laughs) You picked him. And here's what we need to remember out of that. We're all flounders. That's the point. Every one of us is a flounder. You're marrying a flounder. You're marrying an image bearer of God, but you're marrying a flounder. One of the things, I've I've done five weddings already in January. We have a very young congregation. I've done five weddings in January already. It's awesome. One of the things I always say during the ceremony is that you are not a finished product. You are a work in progress. By definition, that means that you've got flaws and things you need to work on with God and with your spouse. That's what marriage really looks like. You're taking two and joining these two people in one, in covenant oneness. You're, you're taking a crucible of life that has room for one person and you're putting both people in there. Of course it's going to be difficult and challenging. But husbands and wives are both called to this covenant in God's marriage and called to include the Holy Spirit because it's supposed to be a picture of God's sacrificial covenant relationship with us. God's vision for marriage was given right out of the gate in the creation account before sin even entered the equation. God says this in Genesis chapter 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And for those of you that go, yeah, that's just Genesis, Old Testament stuff. Uh -uh -uh. Jesus repeats this in Matthew 19 and Paul writes it again in Ephesians 5. We really need to learn to dance with each other and not diss each other. And then we need to also remember that the culmination of the gospel is in fact a marriage. You realize that Jesus says in heaven there's going to be no giving and and receiving of a married one. Instead, it's it's a... culmination in marriage of God and His people. It's a picture of the sacrificial love that the groom, Jesus, has for His bride, the church, and the church's loving devotion to the groom who gave up His very life for her. Let me read it to you. In Revelation 21, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Let's pray together. Lord God, I just I pray for our marriages. I I know how challenging marriage is. But I also want us to just turn away from ourselves and our own capabilities and push heavy, heavy and hard into the filling of the Holy Spirit, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, the hope of the Holy Spirit, the patience of the Holy Spirit, the perseverance of the Holy Spirit, the gentleness of the Holy Spirit, the rebuke of the Holy Spirit. Let us push into that. Let us look to you for our strength and our sustenance. Let us rely on you. Let us us see our spouses in a new gospel-centered light every single day not just once, but every single day. Let us be reminded of our wives and our husbands, of our youth, and that joy that we had, and build on that joy. God, help us to do that. We need you. We love you desperately, but we need you in the midst of this. So help us with that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.